Well, good morning and welcome to Bridgewater. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet, my name is Tim and I'm one of the pastors here. And that's, that was Aaron from our Vessel campus and he really is that bad at skateboarding. And uh, it was pretty entertaining to watch that. But uh, we are glad that you are here. I'm super excited that you actually came on Daylight Saving Sunday early. That was awesome. I thought there would be like nobody here and then the second service would just be like standing room only. But you guys are super awesome. You know, a few years ago, I decided to purchase a snowblower. We had moved into a new house and we had a new driveway that was absolutely jihugic. And it was clear that if we got any amount of snow worth shoveling, it was going to take me an entire week to shovel this driveway. And so I began to look into snow blowers and talk to friends about them. And one of my friends said, hey, you need to talk to this guy named Bob. Bob actually refurbishes snow blowers and lawnmowers. So I give Bob a call, and it just so happens that he has a snowblower that he just finished up. So I borrow my friend Doug's truck, and we head over to Bob's house, and I'm talking to him about this snowblower, and he's telling me how it works and what he fixed and what it does, and pulls out his phone and shows me a picture of this incredible arc of snow, that this thing is throwing snow like 15, 20 feet in the air, and so I'm getting really excited because... In my mind, this thing is going to do an incredible job. Like, it is a beast. And I'm, I'm envisioning this clean, crisp, clear driveway. Like, it's like perfectly plowed, but I did it with a snowblower. And so, begin talking to him, and we talk money, and eventually we strike a deal. And I bring it back home, and I can't wait for it to snow. And, and I have a love-hate relationship with snow, I mostly hate it. I love to see it gone. But that's my deal, and I can't wait for it to snow. In fact, actually, there was one day where it snowed about like an eighth of an inch, and I was tempted to just fire this thing up, and, but I didn't. I, I resisted temptation, and then Thanksgiving came, and our family and I, we went over to visit Shana's parents, and then we came back, and there was a bunch of snow on our driveway, and it was midnight. But I was still tempted to go and bring the snowblower out. But we had to unload the van and get the kids in bed. And so the next morning, I woke up and I couldn't wait. Like I was like a little kid, Christmas time, couldn't wait to bring his new toy out and fire up the snowblower. And it's going, it's sucking up the snow. And then it's barely pushing the snow out the chute. It's like, foomp, foomp, foomp. And I'm like, no way. Like, what is going on with this thing? I mean, I can shovel faster than this thing is working right now. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. And I start, like, pushing levers and mashing buttons and turning knobs. And I'm doing all sorts of things to get this thing to work a little bit better. And everything that I try is failing one after the other. And I'm getting frustrated because in my mind, this seems absolutely ridiculous. I mean, this guy must have sold me a lemon. And that frustration is now turning into anger. And it's wrapped into discouragement. And I'm just really mad. I don't know if you've ever been there, if you've ever had something like that happen to you 
where you purchased something and it was supposed to do this and it didn't, or you had a plan for your life, you had a plan for something with school or work and it was supposed to work out this way and it didn't, or you were in a relationship and it was supposed to go this way and it, and it didn't, and then you started getting frustrated and angry and sometimes we look at things like that, we go, you know what, that's not fair. Or we look at a scenario and, and we say things like, you know what, she just makes me so mad. Or he just makes me so mad. Or this isn't my fault at all. And we end up with these emotions that boil over. And we end up saying things that we wish we could take back. We end up doing things that we wish we could erase or take back. And the question is, why do we keep doing that over and over and over again? Why do we continue to give in to the same temptations, into the same sins over and over and over again? Well, today I want to ask you a question. Why do we do what we do? Why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Why do you say the things that you say? Because we all have these desires and we all have these actions we wish we could take back. And James is going to answer this question in James chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and we're going to finish up today our series in the book of James, and we've been looking at authentic faith. James has been talking about what does faith look like when, when we face these trials and difficulties? What does authentic faith look like in the realm of temptation? What does faith look like when it comes to wisdom? And are we going to actually listen and actually practice what God's word says? And then he gets to this area of fighting and quarrels and interacting with other people. And he hits on this question, why do you do what you do? James chapter 4, let's read verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it on the screen behind me. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures." So James starts off with this really interesting question. Why do you do things that you do? Why do you fight with people? Or maybe a, a better way of saying it is, is, why do you behave the way that you do? Look back at, at verse 1. It says, what causes these fights? Why do you fight with your spouse? Why do you fight with your kids? And this is a great question to ask teenagers, right? Teenagers, why do you fight with your mom and dad? don't answer out loud. You'll get in trouble. And it's equally fun to ask parents, why do you fight with your teenager? Why do you fight with your kids? And typically when I ask these questions, we get things like, well, it's over bedtime. I want to stay up later. Or I want them to go to bed sooner. Or they want to listen to this music. Or I want to watch this on TV. I want to watch this movie. I want to go to this event. I want to play these games. I want to spend time with these friends. And those are the things 
that we're fighting about with our kids and with our parents. But notice what James says. You and I fight, and they come from these desires that battle within you. That deep inside of me, there's a battle. Deep inside of you, there's a war going on. That we, we do what we do because we want what we want. And James is saying, what's the source of your behavior? It's your desires. That you and I, we want something so badly. And what happens is you and I are not fighting for the kingdom of God. We're not fighting for what God wants, but we're fighting for what we want. That there's this little tiny kingdom of self that I want the dishes done this way, and she wants the dishes done this way, and those desires, those two kingdoms come, and they collide, right? In my house, Shana will load the dishwasher one way. The kids will load the dishwasher another way. And then there's the right way, the Tim way. And for some reason, somebody, I don't know who, I haven't figured out yet, but somebody puts the butter knives so they face the right, and I always flip them over so they face the left. I don't know what's wrong with me, but James says, there's something going on with my desires. Why do you do what you do? Because you and I, we want what we want, and inside of us are these desires. In fact, most marital conflict has to do with these desires colliding. That she is fighting for the kingdom of self and he is fighting for the kingdom of self. And then those desires seem to be at odds with each other. If you have kids, your kids are probably not always obedient. They probably don't always listen. But as a mom, as a dad, as a grandma, as a grandparent, like we want these kids to listen. We want them to obey. We just want them to follow instructions. And I'll be honest, sometimes I just want my kids to listen because that would make my life so much easier. It would be so convenient if they always did the right thing. What is it that I'm, what is it that I'm wanting what is it that I'm desiring? Ease, convenience. Maybe you're married and you just wish that when your, your husband or your wife came home or when you got home that something would be done or, or this would be taken care of. And if only this would happen, then, man, I'd be so happy. Things would be pleasant. What is it that I'm wanting? happiness, a pleasant life. Maybe you were hoping for that promotion. Maybe you were promised that raise and you, you found out that somebody else got the promotion instead of you and you look at them and you go, yeah, they can do a good job, but I would have done it so much better. And you were, you were hoping for that raise. You were hoping for that promotion because you're thinking, okay, if I just got that extra money, we were going to do this to the house. Or we were going to go, we were going to buy a boat. Or I was going to buy a new car. And now I'm frustrated. Now I'm irritated because I probably could have done it better. What were you wanting? Maybe material possessions. Maybe wealth. And James says, 
We do what we do because of our desires that are creeping up. They're battling. They're fighting inside each and every one of us. And so I'll be honest. Sometimes I preach and I go home and I'm like, that was terrible. And I fall into this spiral of self-pity, thinking I should have done this, I should have done that. And and as I look back, what was I wanting? It was the praise of man. It was accolades. It It was, hey, that was a great job. And those are not good desires. But sometimes we do have good desires. And those desires actually begin to rule us. They begin to control us. They begin to dominate our lives. We want things like ease, convenience, happiness, pleasure. We want people to love us and appreciate us. And the reality is your desires are far more dangerous than you think. And the first danger is that my desires can cause conflict with others. That your desires are dangerous. My desires are more dangerous than I think. And the very first thing I need to be aware of is that my desires, the ones that are battling inside of me, fighting for the kingdom of self, those can cause conflicts between me and my kids, me and my wife, me and you, me and whoever. But notice what James also says, right? We're not just battling for the kingdom of self, but these desires, let's see what happens when we keep reading. Look at verse two. You desire and you don't have. So what do you do? You kill. You covet. You want something so badly, but you can't get what you want. So you quarrel you fight, you argue, you bicker, you stomp your feet, make a big deal about it. Sometimes these are even good desires. A desire for a job, a desire for a promotion, a desire for a raise, a desire for a family, a desire for kids. Those aren't bad desires. Those aren't wrong desires. But what James says, sometimes you want something. It actually is a good desire, but I want it so badly, I'm willing to kill to get it. I'm willing to sin to get it, right? If I'm willing to to fudge the numbers to make my job and my performance look better in front of the boss so that maybe I get the raise, James says, "You, you want that too badly. Or he says, you know what, maybe you went about that job the right way. You went about that promotion about the right way, and you wanted it, and you didn't get it. So you stormed off, and you slammed doors, and you shouted, and you did some things you wish you hadn't. James says that these desires, they can go wrong when there's two bookends when they go wrong. First, you sin to get what you want. Secondly, you sin when you don't get what you want. Sometimes there are desires in our own hearts, and we know flat out, those are wrong, that's bad, that's evil. But sometimes there's desires that are genuinely really good desires. The desire for pleasure, the desire for sex, it's not a bad desire. But James is given these two bookends If I am willing to sin to get what I want, 
That desire has begun to control me. It's begun to rule me. Likewise, if I sin when I don't get what I want, maybe I wanted it and and I didn't get it, so now I, I just spiral out of control and I'm filled with worry, I'm filled with anger, I'm filled with all sorts of really bad things. James says, that's a desire that's gone wrong. So why do you do what you do? James says, you do, it, you do what you do, I do what I do because of my desires, because I want something so badly. And remember in James chapter 1, it starts with this cycle of sin. Let me show you this cycle of sin. It starts where we're enticed by our desires. That's James chapter 1, right? We're, we're enticed, right? The, the, the fishing rod is there. There's a little bit of bait on that hook. It looks good. But then we're drawn away by those desires. I'm deceived. I think, ooh, look at that. That looks good. It's promising comfort. It's promising pleasure. I'm, I'm drawn away. I'm enticed. And then James chapter 4 says, I'm going to sin to keep those desires. I want that so badly, I'm willing to kill to get it. I want that so badly, if I don't get it, I'm going to fight with people. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to make sure that I'm heard. But then James says, that sin leads to death. There's a separation between you and God. And then it leads back to the enticement. And for a lot of us, we find ourselves going around and around and around. And it seems like this never-ending cycle that you're enticed, you're drawn away, you, you sin to hold on to keep that desire. Then there's separation. You feel guilt. You feel shame. And then you're back in that cycle. So what do we do? Look at what James says we ought to do. First danger is, is that our desires cause conflict, but the second one is that our desires can cause me to sin. My desires can actually cause me to sin. But notice what else James says. He says, you do not have, verse 2, you do not have because you don't ask God. And then he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You want to spend it on yourself. There's some really good things that you want. And you go, you know what? I want this. And I'm just going to go about it the way that everybody else goes about it. I'm going to push people out of the way. I'm going to step on them. I'm going to step over them. I'm going to climb over them. I'm going to go about it the way that I want it. I'm not even going to ask the one who could actually do something about it. I want it. In fact, I want it so badly, I want to spend it on me. And we begin to doubt. We begin to even question whether or not God is good. We doubt that he's good. We doubt that he will provide. We doubt that he cares. And we go, you know what? I don't know if you can handle this. I'm just going to do this all on my own. If I have questions, I'll go to my friends. I'll go to the internet. I'll ask Siri. I'll ask Alexa. I'll ask whoever is my wise counselors. But we neglect to go to the one who actually can provide everything. 
We, we forget to go to the one because we doubt his goodness. And so our desires, they are way more dangerous than we think. And so the third danger is that our desires can cause me to doubt God. And we find ourselves in that cycle of sin, going around and around and around. But notice what James says next. Verse 4 should be startling. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, in light of all of that, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, why would he call the readers adulterous people? Well, Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. That's the picture in the Bible. Jesus is the groom and you and I are the bride. And we turn away from the groom and we start giving our affections to someone or something else. We turn away from Jesus, Jesus who laid down his life for the bride, who sacrificed everything for his bride, who unconditionally loved the bride. And we turn away from him and we go, yeah, but that looks so much better. I kind of want to chase that. I kind of want to pursue that. I kind of want this. This is promising me something so much better. James says, Jesus is the one that died for you. Jesus is the one that laid down everything for you. He is the groom. And we turn away and we cheat on him. James says, you adulterous people. Inside our heart is adultery. Inside our heart is idolatry. But notice what he says next in verse 5. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Every single time I sin, every single time I, I, I chase after these desires, every time I pursue that kingdom of self, it's pride. God says, you know what? I, I'm opposing the proud. But when he sees us in humility, he says, I'm going to show favor to you. So how do we get out of that cycle of sin? How do we break that cycle? Look what he says in verse 7. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's the very beginning. That it, if you find yourself giving in to the same temptation and the same sin over and over and over again, James says, it all begins with this. Submit yourselves. Then resist the devil. And look at what he says in verse 8. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. In the midst of temptation, I can run to Jesus. 
And then he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. That, that we want two different things at the very same time. But notice what he says in verse 9. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Right? It's this picture of, of repentance. Become broken over your sin. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will what? He's going to lift you up. So remember that cycle of sin? It starts with being enticed. You're enticed by your own desires, then you're, you're drawn away by those desires, right? I'm deceived. That looks good. But we don't have to continue into sin, Notice what he says, submit to God. So I can go to God with those desires. God, I'm having these desires right now. And I know that they're wrong. I know that these desires are sinful. I know that I'm wanting this thing too much. God, would you help me to desire the things that you desire? God, would you help me to love the things that you love? But then after I submit, Here's the next step. Resist the devil. Right? Now, the idea of resisting means to, to oppose. It means to stand firm. But it doesn't necessarily mean like be as strong and as powerful as you can and don't move. In fact, we see this in the book of Genesis. There's a guy named Joseph and he's working for a really wealthy man named Potiphar. And Potiphar has given Joseph the authority to be over like his whole house. You're in charge. Run the house. Manage it. Do a good job. And Joseph was. And his wife, she was missing a couple fries from that Happy Meal. And she started flirting with Joseph. And she started coming on to Joseph. And he was like, hold on, lady. Like, you're married. Remember that? And she keeps flirting with him and keeps flirting with him. And he just, he runs. He gets out of there. He's resisting and he does it by running away. To me, that's absolutely incredible because the smartest thing you might do this week is run away from temptation. Get out of the house, get out of the room, get out of the situation, and just go. You don't have to be that strong to stand there and see if you can take it. Get out of there. Next, he says, purify your hearts. He calls, the, or sorry, um, he's talking about drawing near to God. So, so go to him, right? And I think of the prodigal son. That this dad had, had two sons and the younger boy comes to his dad, give me that inheritance. I wish you were dead, all the money right now. And he goes and he, and he spends all of it on all sorts of ridiculous things. Finds himself in a really bad spot and he comes back to God comes back to his father. And the picture is the father sees his son and he runs towards this boy. Draw near to God. Get into the throne room and start talking to him. But notice what the next part of the cycle. Purify your hearts. This is that, he says, stop being double-minded, right? Stop fighting for the kingdom of self. Pursue the kingdom of God. Don't be double-minded, but be single-minded. 
And then it ends with repentance and humility. He starts with submission. That's the idea of humility. And then it ends with humility. If you and I want to break this cycle of sin, it starts and it ends with humility. Go to God with those desires. Submit them to him. Run away. Get out of there. Maybe it's text a friend. Maybe it's call a friend. Maybe it's tell on yourself. Draw near to him. Purify. Stop the double-mindedness. It's possible to break free from these desires. It's possible to break that chain of sin. So here's, here's the picture. It's number one, submit. Resist. Draw near purify, repent, and humble yourself. That's the way out. I didn't say it was easy, but God's word is really clear. There's a way out. And so, let me circle back to that snowblower. You know, as I was messing with that thing, I was getting really frustrated and amped up. I was getting pretty upset and I crouched down. I just kind of looked at it. There's a little control center there with all the buttons and knobs and levers. And actually, there's a little bit of instruction and maybe a couple of pictures and realized that I had no idea what I was doing. And I noticed that some of these things did specific things. They all had a purpose. They all had an intention. And once I realized what they did and I turned them all the right way, it started to actually do what it was supposed to do started launching the snow into the next zip code. That's the same with God's word. Once we look at it, we go, okay, here's what's supposed to happen. Here's what I'm supposed to do with my desires. I'm not necessarily supposed to suppress them. I'm not supposed to get rid of them, but I can do something with them. And then that snowblower begins to work the way that it was designed. And when you and I begin to operate the way we were designed, we can overcome sin and temptation. And I recognize that today may have hit you pretty hard, but imagine what can happen in our marriages if we started and ended with humility. Imagine what would happen in our relationships if we started and we ended with humility. I can't make your spouse do that. I can't make your boyfriend or girlfriend do that. I can't make your boss or your coworkers do that. But the thing that we can focus on right now is us. But imagine if every relationship I entered that with humility. Every time I started wrestling with those desires, I went in with humility. And I imagine a room this size with, with the people that come to Bridgewater, there might be some of you that you feel like you are too far gone. You've blown up your life or you're on the brink of blowing something up or it's already gone sideways and you, this message maybe hit you pretty hard. And I just want to leave you with hope. And so here's what 1 Corinthians 10:13 says. No temptation. No temptation has overtaken you except what is what? Common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. 
But when you are tempted, he will also do what? Provide a way out so that you can endure it. That there's temptations, there's trials, there's difficulties that come into your life and you're not being singled out. They're common. Lots of people have gone through that. And our God, he's faithful. And he knows how much you can handle. Don't misunderstand this next sentence. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. That means that he knows exactly what you can handle and still please God. It doesn't mean it won't be heavy. It doesn't mean that it will be easy. But he knows Tim can go this far and still please God. Jeff can go this far and still please God. Lane can go this far and still please God. I'm not going to give you something so difficult that you can't bear up underneath it and still please God. And there's going to be a way out. There's going to be an exit ramp. There's an off ramp. And sometimes, I'll be honest, I don't know what it is in my particular situation. I have to go to God's word and figure it out. Sometimes, I know exactly how to get out. And I go, yeah, but I kind of like this. I kind of want this. And you can endure it. You can stand up underneath it. And Satan's going to lie to you. Satan's going to give you four lies. Let me show you these lies. Number one, no one else has ever gone through this. You ever felt like you were being singled out with a trial or difficulty or temptation? You can go through that situation. You go, you know what? God has no idea. He doesn't care. Like he's out in space. He's not listening or we can go, you know what? This is just too much. I can't handle this anymore. Or we think, you know what? I'm just stuck. My tires are spinning. There's no way out. I'm stuck. But I want to leave you with hope today. Because that verse tells us that your trial is not unique. It's common. This passage tells me that God is faithful and he has been incredibly faithful in your life and in my life. It's not more than you can handle. It feels difficult. It feels really hard. And there is a way out. But God has hope for you. Even though your desires are far more dangerous than you and I think, there is hope. Let me pray with you. God in heaven, we are amazed at what you say in your word and what you can do and how you plan to work in our lives. Recognize that there's desires that live inside each of us. They're deceptive. They tend to deceive us. They tend to entice us and they're fighting inside of us for all sorts of allegiances other than you today, I ask that you would help us to submit our desires to you. You would help us, show us, teach us how to love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. And for the person here today who just feels so hopeless because sin keeps 
ruining their life. I just pray that you would come alongside them today and give them hope. There's a way out. Pray that you would help us to honor you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this last song?